What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with our third of six installments on this NBA What If project. Very quickly, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, episodes aren't always this short. This is just meant as sort of some digestible audio content, which also coincides with uh, a stretch of time in which I'm tra- traveling. But please consider throwing us that permanent subscription. Uh, tell us, uh, tell people about us who you know enjoy basketball and are looking for more podcast listens, or just help us uh, promote the podcast on Twitter. You could shout us out. I will retweet you at Hardwood Knox. I'm at Damp Valley, F A V A L E. All our socials are in the description. As sort of a brief refresher before we get started, I'm going through these quick what-ifs for every franchise. I did this project for Bleacher Report. You can find the full article with every team's results uh, in the podcast description. I asked people who cover, follow, or root for every single NBA team what their biggest what-if is for the organization. A lot skewed more recently. That was totally fair game. Um, looking at just the, you know, not recency bias, but just recent recent history. I think that matters. Some went a little bit more into the past, it was all very informative and it forces us to kind of think about these ripple effects. What could have been, are some franchisee franchises even still reeling or feeling the feeling the, I don't even want to call it ill effects, but the ramifications of these one ifs. Um, it's an instructive exercise. Um, let me know what yours are for these teams, whether you're fans of them or just rooting for the NBA in general. I think they bring up some interesting discussions, um, but I think it's a good time to really cannonball into the central division. We begin with the Chicago bulls. And I spoke with Morton Stig Jensen from TV to play in the NBA podcast for this. He ended up disagreeing with my moment. Uh, but, you know, like, let's just start this off. What if Michael Jordan never retired the first time? What if Derrick Rose never tore his ACL during the 2012 playoffs? What if we were all spared from the three alphas era? What if the organization had mercifully moved on from the Gar Foreman and John Paxson front office regime, unaffectionately known as Gar Pax, much sooner? Those were the flashbulb moments that first went off inside my mind hole when brainstorming for these Chicago Bulls. But Mort, he came up with something different. He disagreed. This is what he wrote to me. I'd like to go back to the 2017 NBA draft when the Bulls decided to trade Jimmy Butler after inexplicably pairing him with Rajon Rondo and an aging Dwayne Wade the season before. Because every time you set up your star player to fail, you've got to do it, right, Garpax? In the trade, Mort continued, the Bulls also inexplicably forked over the 16th pick in the draft to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Given that the former Bulls front office regime consisted of horrible negotiators, negotiators, excuse me, let's use our what if card on that and ask, what if the Bulls got the 2017 NBA draft right? Assuming they wouldn't have given up number 16, the Bulls, who would have then acquired Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, and Minnesota's seventh overall pick for Butler, would have been armed with the 7th and 16th selections. Instead of going for Lowry Markin at number 7, the organization could have gone all-in on Bam Adebayo, who would have given them a proper two-way big man instead of the one-dimensional Markin, who provided nothing but frustration to the Bulls fan base for four seasons. While the general public was surprised to see Adebayo's full game in the NBA compared to the limited version they saw at Kentucky, most scouts had seen him during practices and knew there was more to him. Proper scouting from the side of the Bulls could have unearthed that. And with the 16th pick, the Bulls could have swung a trade with Denver, who dealt the 13th pick to Utah for Trey Lyles and the 24th selection. Relinquishing the 16th pick in that trade, as well as Denzel Valentine, who still had hope in 2017, for anyone who was wondering, would have been a far more attractive package and allowed the Bulls to pick Donovan Mitchell for themselves. If Denver wanted Bobby Portis and Nikola Mirotic instead, so be it. If you're keeping score at home, the what-if Bulls now have a new core of Levine, Adebayo, and Mitchell. 
this intrigues me. Jensen also noted that the Bulls, Lord also noted that the Bulls cash consideration of their way out of the number 38 pick in this draft, a selection that could have technically been used on Dylan Brooks, Isaiah Hartenstein, Monte Morris, or even Thomas Bryant. My issue here is this is a complicated set of transactions that no team probably hits on in full. It's also a worthwhile vortex to journey down knowing the Bulls extracted plenty of championship equity from MJ and that pre-injury D-Rose always would have ran into the big three era heat. It sort of makes the idea that they got this 2000 and um, I'm sorry, this 2017 draft wrong hits that much harder. Uh, what would be your biggest what if for the Bulls? Let me know. We move on to the Cleveland Cavaliers, though. Thinking about the sheer number of what-if moments for the Cleveland Cavaliers since LeBron James entered the league can get overwhelming. What if he never left the first time? What if he never came back? What if the Golden State Warriors never added Kevin Durant in 2016? How many titles would LeBron second go-round in Cleveland feature? Would Kyrie Irving never request a trade? Would LeBron never be incentivized to join the Los Angeles Lakers? My head hurts. Justin Rowan of the Chase Down Podcast felt a similar way when I posed this exact question to him. Here's what he wrote. This is a ridiculously tough one, as there are so many what-ifs, right down to if the Cavs trade for LaMarcus Aldridge instead of Kevin Love in 2014. Do the Warriors get to execute their plan A and trade some combination of Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson for Love? In the end, though, Rowan settles on the mega what-if that is the 2015 Finals, when Kyrie suffered a fractured left kneecap after Love was already sidelined with a shoulder injury, and the Cavs fell to the not-yet-dynastic Warriors. So many of the issues between Kyrie and LeBron blossomed from that moment, Rowan wrote, with LeBron questioning whether Kyrie was hurt throughout the playoffs and feeling like he'd play through it. A lot of the reporting, even at the time, suggested that when Kyrie went down, it created a significant fissure in the relationship. There's the immediate question of whether they would win in 2015 if Kyrie was healthy, but the long-term implications are fascinating as well. I agree with Rowan. This feels like the right call, though I still can't shake the KD element of everything. How many titles do the Cavs win if he doesn't go to Golden State? His 2016 free agency decision, made possible by an unprecedented salary cap spike, didn't directly involve the Cavs, but it sure as hell impacted them more than any other title contender at the time. Next up, the Detroit Pistons. When I posed this question to Lazarus Jackson of SB Nation's Detroit Bad Boys, I said something to the effect of it's clearly the Pistons decision to take Darko Milicic over to in 2003 over Carmelo Anthony, right? Wrong. This is what Laz wrote. Darko over Chris Bosh, not Carmelo Anthony is up there for sure. And I've been on that for a while. He then proceeded to point out how I was wrong a second time. This is what he wrote, but I'd like to bring up another one. What if Isaiah Thomas didn't turn his ankle in game six of the 1988 finals? Everyone remembers the 43-point heroics on that turned ankle. The visual of the shortest guy on the court limping up and down the floor, willing his team to stay in the game, is etched into NBA lore. But the Pistons lost Game 6, despite Isaiah's best efforts, and he had nothing left in Game 7, when he had 10 points on 4 of 12 shooting with 7 assists. Still, Laz continued, the Pistons only lost Game 6 and 7 by 1 and 3 points, respectively. What if Isaiah didn't turn the ankle and the Pistons won Game 7 on the road in the Forum? Instead of a mere back-to-back, Detroit would become, at the time, the third NBA franchise to win three consecutive championships and the first to do it since the 1960s. Isaiah wins three in a row, something Larry Bird and Magic Johnson never did, and beats both of them in the playoffs to do it while going 2-0 against Magic in the finals. Is he the greatest point guard of all time with that resume? This was a fantastic 
uh, rabbit hole by Laz. I've personally always viewed the Isaiah Thomas injury as typical collateral damage of a larger championship window for a team that won multiple titles. But the implications it had on how he and the Pistons uh, are remembered today, it, it hasn't really, honestly, it's seldom if ever crossed my mind. The greatest point guard debate in particular probably sounds extremely different. And here's what Laz had to say about that. Detroit's championships are often thought as interagenums. That was a fantastic word, by the way. Little blips between the real story of the NBA, the Celtics and the Lakers and Michael Jordan. The 2004 Pistons are still the asterisk champions. Everyone remembers those finals as one the Lakers lost, as if they didn't get their asses whooped for the entirety of that series. A three-peat in Detroit during the NBA's ascension into the global entity it is today was squarely, squarely etched the Pistons into NBA lore in a way I think more accurately represents just how good this team was. I have zero qualms or alternatives to go against Laz at this point. That was a fantastic pick, and he outlaid, outlined it beautifully for the Pistons. Next up is the Indiana Pacers. The most powerful what-ifs are those that invoke emotions, not just for the particular moment and its implications, but many of its predecessors. What doesn't happen can sometimes be a culmination, the apex or conclusion in a long line of nagging memories that combine a sense of what could have been and business unfinished to gnaw at your fandom. Indy Cornrose's Caitlin Cooper, otherwise known around these parts as the GOAT, found this what-if moment for the Indiana Pacers. Here's what she wrote. When LeBron James knocked down a three-pointer as time expired to seal Game 5 for the Cavaliers in 2018, it immediately brought back shades of his game-winning layup against the Pacers in Game 1 of the 2013 Eastern Conference Finals. Not only because both nail-biting and inexcusably uninhibited displays of the four-time MVP's greatness came at the heartbreaking expense of the Pacers when they had the chance to take a series lead, but also because each was, in part, the product of the sort of defensive breakdowns which forever leave a maddening trail of unanswerable questions. Ignore the missed goaltend that would have put the Pacers up 97 to 95 for a second. LeBron went for three when the game was tied. And put aside whether Roy Hibbert should have been in the game. Switching everything better allows for making snap judgment calls, after all. Just as Thaddeus Young got snagged on a screen, Caitlin continued, allowing LeBron to shoot more comfortably moving to his left, Paul George made an awful error in overplaying the generational talent giving him the lane to the basket. Meanwhile, Sam Young lacked the court awareness to slide over quickly enough to take a charge. And Nate McMillan held on to a timeout and a foul to give, with Bojan Bogdanovic loosely contesting the inbounds pass rather than doubling LeBron when Thad already had five fouls. In both cases, Caitlin finishes, with the sequel being a bad remake of the original, the Pacers are left to wonder whether they beat themselves or cemented their status as tough outs against all-time greats. They lasted seven games against Jordan's Bulls, won three straight only to drop game six of the NBA Finals against the Kobe Shaq Lakers, and lost on a crucial end-of-game possession by a once-in-a-lifetime player. I also think you can make cases for Malice at the Palace to appear here, but aside from that being over-discussed, it doesn't typify the Pacers' run as generational irritants in the Eastern Conference. The moment and moments that Caitlin outlined absolutely up next to wrap up the central division we have the milwaukee bucks shout out to the Eurosteps ty windish for ensuring we didn't have any shared moments between two franchises spoiler alert one of the warriors biggest what ifs has to be keeping steph curry in the andrew bogut trade i presumed something like what if the bucks had actually acquired steph would be the choice for windish and milwaukee it wasn't and ty went a route that i don't think was popular among the public but i respect it and the way that he explained it. Here's what he wrote to me. 
What if Jabari Parker stayed healthy is my choice for the Bucs. Maybe just because I still feel bad for Jabari based on how his career has played out to this point. Given what Giannis Attentacupo blossomed into, there was no shot that, that Jabari would be the MJ to Giannis's Pippen, which is a pipe dream Bucks fans held in 2014. But at the time, the whole hope of the franchise was thrust squarely onto Jabari's shoulders. There was something truly special about a top prospect wanting to play in Milwaukee. The same magic that swirls around Giannis after he chose to stay. The city was starting to get excited about the Bucks for the first time in a long time when they got the second pick and used it on him. Jabari's rookie year started slow, with some positive signs he could be the alpha wing scorer he was billed as, until he tore his ACL. He got back in time for most of his sophomore season and continued to score well within the arc, but it wasn't until his third season, when it seemed like he had overcome the injury entirely and was developing into a dominant talent, just as Giannis made his own leap into being an all-star. They both averaged 20-plus points that season, and Jabari finally started knocking down threes, going from around 25% in his first two seasons to 36.5% that year, while also adding an assist per game to his tally and scoring better than ever within the arc. Alongside Chris Middleton, Giannis and Jabari seemed poised to be the next big homegrown squad until disaster struck and Jabari tore the same ACL again. This is interesting to me. Imagining what the Bucks might look like now had Jabari never suffered a second or initial ACL tear almost feels impossible. Does he satisfy the requirements for a co-star or do the Bucks inevitably move him for someone else? I still think either is a wild proposition for someone whom the Bucks eventually let walk for nothing. I still would have probably picked though. What if Milwaukee had traded um, for Steph Curry in exchange for Andrew Bogut? I also might have gone with what if uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar never left. But a fanta- fantastic stuff from Ty. Hope you enjoyed the latest edition of NBA What Ifs. Until next time, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also remember forever that we must leave you with a shout out to the one, the only the indelible Frank Nielke.